Amen. Church, won't you pray with me as we continue to ask the Lord to just prepare our hearts for the message today. So let's pray. So Father God, we get to call you Father. We're your children. And as your children, we come before you today. We ask for the good gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to convict us where necessary, to encourage us where necessary, to embolden us where necessary, to teach us from the truths of your word. Please, Father God, won't you send your Spirit wherever it is that we're receiving this message today to speak to us, to change us, to make us ever more like your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His marvelous name that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, howdy church, it's good to see you. My name is Ross and it's my immense privilege to be able to share the word with you today. We are in week four of our vision series. I love the simplicity of what we aspire to as a church. And we, the leaders in this church, have so much hope and optimism for us as an ever-changing people. We, we continue to see God expanding His kingdom among us. What a thought. I hope that you see it too. And I hope you're as encouraged and emboldened as we feel. Our vision is that we would be a people of love and a people who continue to grow in our love, especially in four areas where we feel the Lord has asked us to lean in and press. Especially we love God and we wanna love Him more and more and more with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. Uh, secondly, we love the church. Now, we love the, the people of God, the, the, the marvelous body of Christ that He has grafted us into, and we wanna serve her and bless her and see her advance forward amongst the nations. Thirdly, we love the city, and the city in which we find ourselves, that God has called us to be in in this season of our lives is the city of Austin. We wanna serve this place and see it flourish for the glory of God and for the saving of many lives. And lastly, we love the nations. We're gonna speak about that next week. We believe the gospel is so good that it should go to every corner of this earth and wanna do everything that we can to advance that cause. Last week and this week, we've been focusing on loving the city and on two very particular ways that the church is called to love the city by actually being a peculiar people, even in this wonderfully weird city of Austin, Texas. The church is called to love the city by being distinct from the city in some key areas. You see, the church was always called to be a peculiar, a set-apart people, a people who loves their neighbors in their surrounding contexts by living very differently to them and then inviting them in to the celebration of God's grace and God's goodness, which is available as a result. Last week, as we spent the, the first week in this love the city emphasis, the day before MLK Day, we looked at how we could be a people, a distinct, a peculiar people of racial reconciliation and beautiful diversity in a place that still experiences so much separation, division, and hostility. This week, in the week when the US church traditionally remembers Sanctity of Life Sunday, we're going to look at how we can be a people who are humbly but resolutely pro-life, especially 
in the area of the sanctity of life of those humans who are still in the womb. You see, speaking into and having convictions on both of these issues shows a commitment of the church to be what Russell Moore calls pro-life, whole life, or what has commonly been referenced as a womb to tomb pro-life position, which is what we adhere to. And it is a position and a posture, make no mistake, that will make us seem very peculiar to a surrounding culture if we do it right because we won't necessarily fit neatly into the very small and extremely rigid political and ideological boxes that many try to squeeze the church into. This is the truly Christian pro-life ethic. And before we jump into some text today to show you some of what we ground and root that ethic in, I wanted to tell you some of my own story. And I wanted to acknowledge how I know many of you will hear this message today. I, up until not that long ago, was shamefully apathetic to the issue of the sanctity of life in the womb as a young minister of the gospel. In fact, it may shock many of you to know that this is the first time in my life that I am preaching a sermon on this particular topic. That is to my shame. And so if you are tempted to be ashamed of me, I beat you to it, but I'm working it through with the Lord by the power of the Spirit. Part of the reason for some of my apathy was because I saw the political football that this issue became. I do wanna talk about that more and I will towards the end because it is important in this discussion. If I am honest though, I have always felt quite politically homeless especially in a US context where this issue has become politically weaponized, whether we like it or not. Now, I know that shouldn't lead to political apathy or to full disengagement from political processes, but if I'm honest, it did a little bit with me in my heart as I didn't yet have a good theological framework for what engagement as a sojourner and alien ought to look like. Part of the reason for my previous apathy was that my mother, who is one of my great heroes, one of the greatest women on the face of the planet, was a professor of nursing and women's health. who spent years serving in women's trauma centers where she was exposed to thousands upon thousands of vulnerable women, some of whom had been treated with such disdain and disregard by their partners, by their abusers, by their families, by their friends, by medical professionals, and sometimes and all too often even by their faith communities. I was taught then by my mother rightly from a young age not to presume or to underplay the burdens that other people may carry in the circumstances of their lives. And so I will be honest here for a moment. I for some time didn't speak boldly enough on this issue because I thought it was out of place for a man to do so. I still wrestle with that today because while women don't carry the burden of pregnancy and abortion exclusively, they do carry it distinctly. And I don't wanna pretend to understand that or to glibly explain it away. 
What happened though, more than a decade ago, <laughs> is that I forgot that this issue is both incredibly complex and remarkably simple. And I forgot to hold on to some of those simple convictions, but God started to change my heart. In, in rightly attempting to press into the complexities of the application of a pro-life ethic, I forgot to hold on to the simplicities of the convictions that human life exists in the womb with dignity, value, worth, and potential, and therefore should be protected with all that we have. But more than a decade ago, God began to give me strong convictions. As I walked through the scriptures and as I attempted to understand and handle some difficult personal and pastoral situations. You see, when I was just a youth pastor, spending my days playing Xbox and discussing all the ways that I would pastor the church better than the old guys did or could, I got a surprise visit from someone who had previously been very close to our family. I'll be vague here with the details because large parts of the story are not actually in mind to tell. But she came to see me and she said she needed to confess that years earlier when she was very young, she had fallen pregnant and that her father, not the father of the baby, her father had insisted on her having an abortion and that she had agreed to appease him and that she had gone through with it. She was confessing to me because that baby would have been part of my life due to our overlapping circles, which were significant. And she asked me to forgive her that I was denied the chance to know and to love and to help to support um, that child as our community would have done, I have no doubt. She was devastated, still years later. And I was devastated upon hearing her tell the story. My heart was filled with deep compassion for her, but also with something that surprised me, with a deep sense of loss and mourning for that child. God started growing some serious convictions in me that day. And all that I wanna do today is to walk you through how God gave me those strong convictions and began to form in me some of the ways that I believe the people of God can return to the radically humble, gentle, loving, supernaturally strong and determined pro-life community that we are called to be. A few disclaimers, and then we'll get into some text. Firstly, this will not be and cannot be a comprehensive handling of the topic and all of its nuances and resistances and questions and whatabouts. There are so many questions, legitimate ones, and I know that. I have some of them. Over the past few weeks, I've read a full few books and dozens of academic and pastoral articles and papers on bioethics and every possible question and exclusion and complication under the sun. Here is what I will say again. While the application of this may be complex, the underlying biblical conviction is very simple. God forms life, real life, in the womb. And that's just what I want to remind us of today and then invite us to wrestle with some of that complexity elsewhere. There are gonna be a couple of helpful ways to do that even in our church together as a community and we'll speak about those later. Secondly, the audience today, if you're hoping that this is gonna be a, a rant at culture, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. The audience today will be to the church, first and foremost and not necessarily to the world just yet. 
Our temptation can be to focus on out there and what we can say and do in an increasingly post-Christian culture. I get it. Trust me, I get it. But as always, we want to start in-house, humbly, with us. Today won't just be about how we can condemn a mess out there. It is a mess out there. Condemnation of many things would be right and good. But today we want to start with what kind of remarkably pro-life people can we be in here, in here, in our communities. Thirdly, disclaimer, today will be full of grace, full of grace. Research conducted in 2016 showed that somewhere between one in four and one in three American women have had an abortion. That same research showed that though that number decreased a bit in church communities, it didn't decrease as much as you would think it should or would. That means that statistically today we have many listening who have had abortions. Some willingly, some coerced, some in feeling that they had literally no other option. And it leaves scars. And gosh, I know that, we know that. Many women especially live with lives of immense guilt. Satan loves that. Russell Moore said powerfully, no one is more pro-choice than Satan during the drive to the abortion clinic. And nobody is more pro-life than Satan during the drive home. I know that many of you feel the weight of that even as I say that now. Statistically, too, we have men listening who have experienced this in some way, some willingly, some unknowingly, some were the coercers, even the insisters. Some had no idea, no choice in the matter, but it leaves a mark on you, too. Our friends, we want to talk today to those who are listening now and of whom those stats speak. We want to remind you afresh of the remarkable restorative grace of God that is available to you in the gospel. His love and his grace towards sinners is astonishing. And I want you to know that it's readily available to all, to all who would under the conviction of the Holy Spirit cry out to him for mercy. He will meet you today and on every day from this day with that grace that never runs dry. Friends, oh, I know the pain that many of you are feeling. The Lord, His grace, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. I promise you, run to Him, turn to Him. It's sufficient. Last disclaimer, then we'll get going. My hope is that we'd be a people of action as a result of today. We're gonna do baseline convictions today, then we're gonna give you some steps to take. And while this conviction is simple, the action will require thought and faith and boldness. The simple conviction among the many others that we hold ought to make us a new kind of active community in our city. And so we'll give you some steps towards that at the end. Okay, three basic convictions today. Very baseline, very simple. I know, I know, I know, I'm not gonna say enough for many of you, and I know I'm gonna say too much 
for many of you. Let's just listen to these convictions. Let, let the Spirit soften our hearts and give us uh, ears and hearts of faith to just let these convictions resonate in our heart together. First one, God sees and God knows and God values and God dignifies life in the womb. How important is this to God? It's immensely important to God because he sees, he knows, he values, and he dignifies life in the womb. That, to be honest, is the simple part. But a part nonetheless that we would benefit from being reminded of again today so that our conviction can be stirred. Let me just read you a few texts. These are nuanced and not intended to teach this as their main point. So I'm not gonna use them on you today as biblical mic drops or slam dunks, but just look at the simple assumptions contained about life in the womb from some of these texts. Psalm 139 verse 13 says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. In my mother's womb, I praise you, for I am, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Friends, David, the writer of that psalm, he is persuaded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God formed him as a person where? In the womb. His life, his value, his potential, his God-given dignity didn't begin at birth or at his first breath, but was with him and in him in the womb of his mother. The Psalm goes on to say how God had thoughts about him and plans for him. Uh, Gilbert Mylander in his book on bioethics rightly and humbly admits that, that we should be careful when reading Psalm 139 in this light because it doesn't do much to pinpoint the beginning of life. And that is not the point of the Psalm. But here is what it does do. Listen to what he says. He says, what the Psalm does quite effectively, however, is to depict a God who does not value achievement more than potential who cares for even the weakest and the least developed among us. It's a God who does not value achievement more than potential and who cares for even the weakest and the least developed among us. Let's look at the same idea in Jeremiah chapter one. God speaking to Jeremiah says, before I formed you, who for, what was he doing? He formed Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's Jeremiah 1 verse five. According to God, speaking to Jeremiah, he had a soul and a God-given destiny before he was fully formed. And he was consecrated in the womb before he was born. Now again, this is not meant to be treated as a scientific argument on personhood, but it speaks of God forming a very real person with incredible care, forming him in the womb, making him, shaping him, calling him. Look at Isaiah, look at his sense of call and its origins. In Isaiah 49 verse one, he says, the Lord called me. From where? The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. That's Isaiah 49, 
verse one. What we see here is a pattern that bears out right throughout the scriptures. God is, is a creating God and God is a calling God. He creates image bearers and he does so through the remarkable process of a new life taking form in the womb of a woman. It's incredible to consider. And he calls through his spirit so that people would follow him. And he does this, the scriptures tell us again and again, to souls that are still in utero. Look at that language of care. Look at the language of dignity. Look at the language of worth. Look at the language that is undeniably describing real life in the womb. And then friends, consider this. This has blown my mind in my study. How our Lord Jesus Christ comes to earth to rescue us He doesn't escape any of life's experiences, womb to tomb. (laughs) Have you ever thought of that? Oh, the humility that Jesus displays in going through nine months of gestation in Mary's womb in part so that he can be our sympathetic high priest in every part of life. I love again what Mylander said on this topic. He said, in Jesus of Nazareth, God has lived and redeemed the entirety of human life from its very beginnings to the death toward which we all go. He has been with us in the darkness of the womb as he will be in the darkness of the tomb. I love the story recorded in Luke 1 of Jesus getting to meet John the Baptist for the first time while they were still both in the womb. Look at Luke 1, it says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, this is from verse 41, the baby leaped or leapt in her womb. This little baby boy gets excited. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Isn't that just an incredible image, friends? John the Baptist in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit leaping for joy, why? because of the presence of Jesus also in the womb, likely in the early stages of gestational development, but alive in personhood, even though he's in weakness, even though he's in total humility, even though he has utter dependence upon his mother, but alive. Now again, this text is actually Christological and not ethical in its intent. Not meant as a textbook on gestational development shouldn't be used as such, but it again reveals the assumption of life, of value and of destiny in utero. And as I said, friends, the applications, as we can see, may be complex, but the conviction from the scriptures is very simple. The scriptures show us repeatedly that God sees, that God knows, that God values, and that God dignifies life in the womb. And so, 
A good and proper guiding principle for the very complex questions that will face us is to view all of those questions first through one grounding question, which is this one. What is God like? What is his posture towards these smallest of creatures, those still in the womb? When we ask that question first, then the others can fall into their right and proper place. Our governing questions are not first, is the fetus a person? And when is the fetus a person? When do they become a person? Our guiding questions are not first, can this baby be supported? Our guiding question is not first, will it live a quality of life that we deem to be the minimum necessary for our view of human flourishing? Our guiding question is not first, is this fair on the mother? Those are relevant and empathetic questions to be sure, but they are terrible lenses through which we will struggle to see clearly enough to make truly ethical Christian judgments. We must start with who God is and what his posture is to the smallest and weakest of his creatures. But here, friends, if you're paying attention to the debate, you run into another issue. Part of the way that this conversation is framed today means that when you say that, that life matters and counts and is real and is blessed by God in the womb, when you say that, then you will be pigeonholed into a characterization that says that to be for that statement means that you have to be against the well-being of women and especially vulnerable women. But again, while these issues become very complex, the scriptures again show us a conviction that is strong and simple in response. And the second conviction is simply that God sees God knows, God values, and God dignifies, not just those in the womb, but God sees, God knows, God values, and God dignifies women. And the scriptures teach us that repeatedly. From the dignity, value, worth, and purpose that is spoken into the handcrafted image-bearing Eve to the truly countercultural role of so many strong women, women throughout the narrative of the scriptures, the Bible actually ends up being hugely countercultural in its view of women. Jesus interacts with women like no other first-century rabbi, seeing them engaging with them, befriending them, sending them out on mission, dignifying them in a society determined to shame them at every turn. It's no surprise then that his first followers in the earliest manifestations of the church have women feature prominently in their endeavors as co-laborers and spirit-filled sisters in Christ. They're essential in the development of the early church. Now, this is clearly a different sermon and one that needs to be preached repeatedly, and I don't have time today, but I want us just to look quickly at God seeing and valuing a particularly vulnerable pregnant woman in the Scriptures. Look quickly with me at Genesis 16. It's a crazy story. It's a a mind-blowing story where Sarah hasn't been able to conceive a, a pain that my wife and I know all too well. But in response, she has this startling act of cruelty. She, she gives her African Egyptian servant to Hagar. Uh, Hagar, he, she, she gives Hagar to Abraham as a wife of sorts. Hagar falls pregnant, which breaks Sarah's heart. And so she begins to abuse and mistreat her so much so that she runs away in her pregnant state and finds herself in a fair deal of strife. She's she's alone, she's with child, she's in the desert. She has no provisions, no opportunities, no protection. 
And then an angel of the Lord appears to her there and says, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Even though the angel is gonna go on to say that the son is going to be a very difficult character who will have a very difficult life, Hagar's response is this. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Oh my goodness. He's the God who sees. He sees and he cares and he looks after. Her story gets even more complex. She's abused again after her son is born and then they are both left vulnerable and exposed in the desert and near death. God speaks to them again and cares for them again and shows them who he is again. He cares, he sees, he hears, he knows. And so again, like a stuck record, friends, I'm a simple man with a simple message. I know that the various applications and implications of this are complex. But simply today, we cannot say theologically that to be pro-life is to be anti-woman because God, the God of the Bible, is pro-life and pro the flourishing of women. I love this quote from a document that we've put together which is called our Sanctity of Life Primer. It's written by some very gifted members of the Austin Stone. It says this, while the world tells us that we must decide whether we are for women or against women in the abortion debate, Christians can confidently say that our God is devoted to the flourishing of both women and their unborn children. God is a passionate defender of the vulnerable wherever they are found. He is for the poor pregnant woman who does not know how she will possibly feed another child. He is for the teenage girl holding a positive pregnancy test, crushed by anxiety about the future. He is for the post-abortive woman overwhelmed with shame and grief because of her decision. He is for the defenseless unborn child. He is knitting together inside her mother's womb. This is the kind of heart we must beg God for. These are the people for whom we must lay down our lives for God's glory and their flourishing. Okay. So what does God do in his care? Well, part of what he does is that he sends a community of people to help us live out these convictions together. And that is my last conviction today, and it's simply this. The church, the church is called to be a peculiar people with an unrelentingly pro-life ethic. We're called to be a peculiar people, different from the rest, with an unrelentingly pro-life ethic. So often, when this topic is spoken about in church, the emphasis all too quickly turns to Washington and what can be done there, I get it. There is clearly much to do. Even in the last couple of days, we have seen that with much pain. I want some things different legislatively in a number of areas. But what if the church was pretty much at its best? Just dream with me here for a second. With its most vibrant witness in a pro-life conviction in a season when it had zero political influence. What if that was actually our best season? in a season where its focus wasn't on the 
trying to get the government to act the way that Christians ought to, but where his focus was on living a life of true Christ following in a countercultural and set apart way. Christian historian and New Testament language scholar, Larry Hurtado, outlined this phenomenon of the church, showing its love through its distinction from its surrounding cultural context in a couple of his books, which focused especially on the church's witness to Rome in the first three centuries of the church's existence. Three centuries, remember? Three centuries that were riddled with persecution, suffering, and opposition on all sides. Hurtado concluded that the church in that period was unique in its view, that the gospel was so powerful that it actually made people into new creations, and that adherence to this new creation belief made them humbly, listen, but obdurately distinct in five particular ways. Listen to these five particular ways that the church just stood out like a sore thumb in the culture of Rome. Number one, the early church was markedly and startlingly multi-ethnic, no one else did this, only the church. Everyone else just scratched their heads. Secondly, number two, the early church was a community formed and marked by forgiveness and reconciliation. In a culture and a context where forgiveness was seen as weakness, the church was like, no, no, we're sinners, and so we forgive. We're radical communities of grace. Number three, the early church was famous for, oh God, help us, famous for its hospitality, and costly care for the poor and the suffering in their society when it wasn't deemed as virtuous to help the poor because it was an honor-shame culture. So the poor were to be left. The church said, no, no, we won't do that. We'll show radical hospitality and costly care for the poor. Number four, <laughs> this is amazing. The early church believed and lived a truly countercultural sexual ethic <laughs> in the wild sexual ethic or lack thereof of Greco-Roman culture, the church said like, no, no, sex is sacred and it's reserved for marriage between a man and a woman and the rest of their society thought they had lost their minds. And number five, the early church was radically committed to the sanctity of life. They were radically pro-life. Now wait, that's fascinating. The community of Jesus in a time of powerlessness was famous for its distinctions in ways that meant that they didn't fit anywhere. You couldn't place them somewhere neat in Greco-Roman society. They were too progressive on their ideas of the poor for cultural conservatives. They were too conservative for cultural progressives and it wasn't because they were centrist. They weren't in the middle of any of these issues. They didn't compromise towards a centrist position. They just humbly lived out their new identity in Christ and adopted a posture that made them properly pro-life from womb to tomb, even though they had zero access to political power. One of the key ways they did this, it was felt by the societies that Christians continued to fight for life by taking in abandoned and unwanted babies of one of the closest practices that that culture had to abortion, which was called infant exposure and involved simply leaving unwanted newborns on garbage heaps where Christians were the only ones who saw the value of those totally dependent discarded lives and went daily to those heaps and took those children in and raised them at great cost to themselves. You know what started to happen? Women started going to those communities with those babies before they went to the city dump because there was only one truly trustworthy pro-life group in all of culture, 
the church. Imagine if that was our posture and our focus today. Imagine again with us that we could be a peculiar people of love and grace and human dignity who so value life that we are fully prepared to lay down our own for the saving and flourishing of another's. Whether that be the smallest and most vulnerable of all, a child in the womb of its mother, or whether that be the terrified pregnant teen or confused and frightened parents who have seen something truly alarming on a scan. Imagine us being a people of grace and truth who rally around, firm in our convictions and willing to sacrifice for them and who say, we will help together in Jesus' name. A people of grace where sinners of all sorts find hope and mercy and the gospel lived out in radical forgiveness and kindness. A people of resolute truth, unwilling to be boxed into man-made corners of political expediency, but who stand on the word and allow it to guide them while they sacrificially navigate complexity together. A people of help, <laughs> whereas Acts 4 says there was not a needy person among them. Do you know what a difference this church has made in this city already through adoption and foster care? It's phenomenal. It's been known for it. It's been known as those who are willing to help because there's so much more to be done. Imagine if we were known primarily for how helpful we were through our pro-life ethic. Look at this vision. Again, from our Sanctity of Life primer documents, and then I'm finished. It says to do this, in other words, to live this ethic out. We will need every person, every gift, every ability, every insight of the body of Christ. For our neighbors to know the love of God, the church must operate as a unified body that is held together by the love of God. If we as the church ache to live in a world where human dignity is highly regarded, both our bodies and our souls matter, the unborn are free from violence, women are celebrated and supported, and discrimination of any sort is crushed, then we must start with our own hearts and minds. We must consider how mercy is a defining feature of our story, and we must seek justice from a posture of mercy. We must love like the good Samaritan in Luke 10, willing to go out of our way to sacrificially serve those whom we, from whom we expect nothing in return. As Christians, we enter into this delicate space with truth seasoned with love, sharing the same invitation of forgiveness and grace that we ourselves have received in Christ. It is only with this disposition that the people of God bearing gospel truth, gospel hope and gospel life can become as Spurgeon once declared, salt in the midst of putrefaction, light in the midst of darkness, life in the midst of death. I am hopeful for us as a people. What a difference we could make. What a difference we could make as we seek to love our city. Here are some things you can do today in response. First, I urge you, under the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit, to ask the Lord if you are called to fostering and adoption in whatever stage of life it is that you find yourself in. Start today, ask Him. Ask Him. Ask the Lord. Second, consider partnering with and consider making a donation to one of our partner orgs that serves women's health and, uh, and, and the need of young women in our city. 
Uh, one of our most meaningful partners at the moment is called The Source. You can find details of theirs on the website and on the app. There are many ways to help them help. And thirdly, also in the app, we have our Sanctity of Life resource. It's a wonderful document, starts to get into many different layers of this conversation. Read it, reflect on it, pray through it, have God grow convictions in you through it. And then lastly, if you are someone who has experienced the horrors of abortion, if you're a woman who needs help and care, why don't you consider signing up for our Forgiven and Set Free group, um, which is a post-abortive care group that starts on February 22nd. The details again are on the website and on the app and provide a community that can help you to experience the grace of God in a new and fresh and life-giving way. Oh dear friends, Let's be God's sort of pro-life people. Resolute, committed, convicted, brave, but humble, gentle, helpful, kind. Jesus' sorts of people. We can and we must. Won't you pray with me? So Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you teach us simple convictions that can help us to navigate sometimes very complex situations. Thank you for the reminder today. You knit us together in our mother's womb that you saw us before one day came to pass. You had thoughts towards us, love for us, plans for us, purposes for us. What a delight, what a joy, what a privilege. Pray that you would grow genuinely pro-life convictions in us. Thank you that you did it in me. Forgive me for the fact that it took me so long. Pray that you would stir us up today. Lord, for those who are hurting today, oh, I pray that you would comfort and convict and comfort again. Your Holy Spirit would be tangible and rich and real and thick to those who are experiencing the pain and the guilt. To remind them of your love, of your mercy, and of your kindness. And Lord, make us a genuinely helpful, hopeful, pro-life people who can love the city by living differently to the city, by serving it, by helping by showing them another way. Keep us true to our convictions and help us to live them out in a supernaturally empowered, supernaturally empowered way for your glory and fame. Help us, please, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.